Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. You are joining us for episode 358, Everything Happens in Relationship. In this episode, we interview guest farmer, butcher, and just overall badass Kate Cavanaugh on the connection of ourselves back into the process of our food chain, exploring pillars of life and death in the experience of the animal and how that impacts our nutrition, our environment, and just our overall life experience. Yes. Hands down, Kate Cavanaugh blew my mind when I saw her lecture back in April at the What Good Shall I Do conference over in Rome Ranch. She talked through the journey of a seed and, I mean, talked about passing through the gastric lumen and went through the physiology of the process of digestion and nutrient assimilation and talked about chloroplasts and ATP and, I mean, I... My inner nerd uh, totally was lit up hearing her talk, and she's absolutely poetic. And then I saw her butcher a bison in the field with a handsaw, uh, which was just a totally different dynamic, serious demonstration of power. And uh, I think that she is an amazing speaker, an amazing human, and the way that she makes these deep connections from seed to soil, from plant and animal to plate, um, from connecting us into our cosmos even, is just super powerful and I can't wait to chat. So let's get our business covered so we can bring her on. Yes, you guys are going to love her. Uh, Before we do that, let's just chat for a moment. We're now about two weeks out from our 12-week live Food is Medicine Ketosis program that launches on September 6th. This program consists of six every other week live classes through various functional medicine topics, as well as, of course, introducing the concept of keto, troubleshooting along the way, and then helping you to create this as a sustainable lifestyle change. This is $2.99 for all 12 weeks, and it runs you through right before that Thanksgiving time. So it really sets you up for success throughout the holiday season. Maybe there's a couple pounds of summer weight that we'd like to shed, or we're looking to balance hormones or really rein in anxiety or mood stability. This program is for you. Absolutely. And as we talk in today's episode, there really is not a one-size-fits-all perfect diet. So when you join our live keto class, you get access to Becky and my brain in our chat forum. So we use a Slack 
chat forum, which is non-social media based. Uh, we check in on that during all 12 weeks of our program. So you're able to ask questions. You're able to let us know if things aren't working. We'll help you troubleshoot your macros, give you suggestions on where to start with nutritional supplementation, or maybe where you need to even dig deeper into a lab. What's going to be a really amazing experience through this program is that you're going to learn more about yourself and how to feel the best you can feel in your body by actually reconnecting with yourself. So kind of again, in today's topic, you're going to learn to listen to your own body's feedback again after maybe a summer of distraction or crazy or catering to the kids. Um, So getting back into that self-care, self-prioritization to really understand what's working, what isn't, and how you can use food as medicine and how that's defined uniquely for you. We're here to handhold and guide you through the process and help you to feel empowered once again using your diet as a way to really harness the foundation of optimal health in your entire system. And like Becky said, we're not just talking reducing inflammation, shedding some pounds, making body composition change, but even influencing mental health, autoimmune conditions, and so much more. So we'd love to have you join us in our program that kicks off September 6th. We have every other week classes on Wednesdays at 12 Central Standard. The classes are uploaded so you can watch them within 24 hours if you do miss the live i will say about 40 to 60 percent of our participants miss the live but they still participate in our live program because of the benefits of the slack having that community engagement and they just watch the classes within you know one day's time of the live recording and they still have that active engagement we still address their questions when we get to that part because um, they're able to participate in our google forms and and so much more so if you want to get integrated into six successful start to the fall, go on over to AllieMillerRD.com, grab a spot under virtual programs in our live 12-week keto class. It's $299, a fantastic value and investment in thriving again in your body. All right, let's have a quick word from our sponsor for this episode, which couldn't be a more perfect sponsor. Noble, yes. So we first learned about Noble actually from our friends over at Wild Foods uh, and they shared Noble with us in our Wimberley Wellness event. So you may have heard us talk about them in that live podcast episode. Uh, Noble provides an organs complex that is powdered blend of high quality beef organs from New Zealand source grass-fed beef liver, heart, kidney, pancreas, and spleen. So they bring nose to tail nutrition at an access point to the masses where we need it the most. We know in America, we tend to not consume offal or organs, and we're losing out on nature's multivitamin or the most nutrient density that we can receive that an animal offers. So when you're using Noble Organ Complex, you can add just a teaspoon a day into your protein shake or smoothie. Um, We have been doing this effortlessly for Brady, Stella, and myself. Uh, The whole family loves any of the smoothies and shakes that we're making, and I can feel confident that we're getting that nose-to-tail nutrition and even easier delivery than doing some of the ancestral grinds. So this is a very simple way to integrate organs into your family's diet. Um, Again, can be used in an array of different recipes out there. Go on over to nobleorigins.com. That's N-O-B-L-E-O-R-I-G-I-N-S.com. 
uh, and use the code Allie Miller RD at checkout. We'll also put my discount link in the show notes. When you use Allie Miller RD, you're going to save at checkout on the Noble Organs Complex. You can also explore their beef protein powder with colostrum and organ blend within it. Uh, three simple products, all nutrient dense, all very clean sourced, and an easy way to up level or upgrade your food as medicine medicine cabinet, if you will. Um, again, that's nobleorigins.com. Use Allie Miller RD at checkout. All right, let's do it. I'm going to read Kate's bio and then we'll bring her on the show. Kate Cavanaugh is a farmer, butcher, nutrition therapist, and the host of Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. She saw firsthand the power of meat to heal her own body, and in seeking out farmers and ranchers raising meat with holistic practices, she found the power of meat to heal the land, too. In 2013, she opened Western Daughters Butcher Shop in Denver, Colorado. Kate is now the host of the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast, where she is devoted to digging in deep with guests, finding the threads of what it means to be humans woven into this earth. In her spare time, Kate raises goats, pigs, cows, and poultry on a small farm in upstate New York. Welcome, Kate, to the Naturally Nourished podcast. It is such a pleasure to be here. We are stoked to have you here. Uh, you blew my mind at the What Good Shall I Do conference. Uh, you spoke on, I don't know if it was called The Journey of a Seed. That was called. It was called Everything Happens in Relationship. And I think that that feeling was mutual. Watching you on stage absolutely blew my mind as well. Uh, thank you. Also, I'm stoked today. I was blown away by your education level on biochemistry and physiology and also your artful language and delivery, um, the experience of nutrient assimilation and, and all of the things. Uh, but I really want to open up on the dynamic of life and death and really just first dig into how humans are overriding the necessary processes or maybe mm. trying to hide from the experience of death in everything, you know, their food choice, their lifestyle and how this cycle disruption, let's just go for it. That's a big one, right? Let's just jump. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I love this. I love this. Let's riff let's on this about life through death and, and, and why death is an essential part of the cycle, I guess. Yeah, death is such an essential part of the cycle. And I think that we begin to see our relationship with death break down over time. And I think we can point a lot of fingers where some of these fractures begin to happen. And I actually think the first really big fracture is when agriculture comes onto the scene 10 to 12,000 years ago. And we begin to become disconnected from the intimate cycle of death's necessity as the pre precursors of life, mm -hmm. that death is this moment when one becomes many, or as Sophie Strand puts it, when life overflows its cup. Mm -hmm. And so it is the processes that happen inside of a body, whether that's plant or animal, where all of the sudden, without that autopoetic process of keeping that boundary of self all the others begin to proliferate. And so when we think about the fact that we are only 10% human, that for every one cell that is human, there are nine cells that are bacterial or viral or some sort of helminthic parasite, that those begin to go rogue and they begin to feast and proliferate and bodies become the nourishment for soil that 
that decay process is what liberates phosphorus and nitrogen and potassium, which we consider synthetic fertilizer, and then all the fertilizers within our microbiome, and really give way to new and prolific life. And this is a constant cycle that is happening. And we've become more and more disconnected from it. And so I think that this happens, you know, again, sort of at the beginning of agriculture, I think this happens again at the scientific revolution, where there's this idea that mind and matter are separate, and the industrial revolution, where we really begin to see this, this almost purposeful separation between us and nature, right? Because we cannot, as Heisenberg said, we cannot speak of nature without also speaking of ourselves. It's not something that's outside. It's something that's inside. And we also, around the same time of the Industrial Revolution, we stopped caring for our dead. Uh, after many millennia of human history where we undertook and cared for our dead right in the parlor and washed their bodies and took care of them, we see the rise of the undertaking industry and the funeral industrial complex. And then this rising disconnection with our food, which I'm sure you guys have talked about on the podcast plenty, right? We see you know, increasingly processed food, food being grown outside of backyards, no connection to, we see the emptying of the commons, there's no connection to processing food yourself and, and seeing death. And so I think in this, we begin to become more and more disconnected mm -hmm. from something that is essential to life. And we become more and more afraid of it because it's been hidden from us. So we'll start there. Yeah. To be afraid of something so natural and, and so part of the complete process or plan and maybe in light of desire of making it synthetic or patented mm -hmm. or uh, mm -hmm. this industrialized commoditized item. Um, I want to just circle back to the NPK thing. Cause that was one of those things that like, to me, when I heard you say that, I was like, Whoa, uh, yeah. when I first learned about you know, organic farming and started to become a, a food nerd in, an, in some capacity and really learn about what is fertilizer, what is compost, you know, and, and all this element. Let's just go a little bit back there. And, and I would love to hear you explain that and um, how the concept of nourishing the soil was so dumbed down to those three elements and, and where they came from, from animal, from body prior and kind of just go into the, the NPK piece a little further. Yeah, so the history of fertilizer is is pretty long. Uh, David Montgomery wrote a beautiful book called Dirt, the Erosion of Civilization that kind of follows the way that agriculture and civilizations have risen and fallen together with fertility, that as we go into a new and fertile space and practice sort of extractive agriculture, the soil health begins to decline. And with it often, and this is sort of a correlation and not necessarily a Civilization, civilization begins to decline. Mm -hmm. And then we move into another fertile landscape. And again, you see this boom of 
quote-unquote civilization. And so there's this real tie between fertility in the soil, which is really complex. And I think it's worth saying at this point that we know less about the soil beneath our feet than we do about the stars above our head. Mm -hmm. And so this is a, a universe that is completely unexplored. There are 1 billion microorganisms in a single teaspoon of soil, billions of viruses. There are miles of fungal networks in just a shovel full of soil. And so there is this rich universe that we are really only beginning to understand. And throughout the throughout the last thousand years, but really throughout the last 200, there has been sort of this race as we've eroded our soil fertility, as we have sort of drawn all of the, that out of the soil to figure out how to put it back in. Now in nature, like I said, death provides this nourishment that there is nitrogen in our blood and that is going to provide nourishment for the soil. Plants are also able to split nitrogen atoms. So nitrogen makes up most of our atmosphere and plants are able to split that so that they can sequester it in the soil. We see that within regenerative agriculture spaces as nitrogen fixing plants. These are legumes, um, whether there's something like a, I mean, technically a soybean, not my favorite, but, but also alfalfa or vetch, things like that. Uh, potassium that's in tissues is also going to be one of these, these three NPK fertilizers and phosphorus that's in our bones. And the history of phosphorus, I think, is actually one of the most interesting in, in this equation, because what we see with phosphorus is that it's a very limited resource. And even to the point where when they figured out that bones were a really really big boom for soil fertility. Uh, the British actually raided Egyptian tombs. They would bring back soldiers' bodies in the 1820s and grind their bones to put back on the fields because they had depleted all deposits of bones in that area. And so, I mean, this is, this is, this is how needed this yeah. element is. Yeah. Um, and it's actually very limited. We have, we have a very limited amount on earth. Uh, most of it is in Morocco here in the United States. We have a little bit in Florida and they just discovered a big deposit in Norway. And so we use these synthetic fertilizers, nitrogen. Uh, we begin to split the Haber-Bosch process. So I said that plants can split nitrogen atoms themselves. Um, it's actually very hard to split a nitrogen atom as, as mankind. And so we created the Haber-Bosch process, um, which splits nitrogen uh, during World War II and actually in, in the making of bombs. And so post-World War II, we begin to apply nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus uh, to our soils to get this boom in fertility. Now, it's kind of a false boom, right? First of all, those are only three elements of fertility. And it's important to recognize that the soil food web is this vast and really interconnected network of all of these different players that are bringing fertility to the soil in a lot of different ways. You have mycorrhizal fungi and earthworms that are working together to break down rocks and the elements in rocks that they're going to transfer to plants. We think of these oftentimes as a lot of minerals. 
So you're going to see zinc and manganese and copper and some magnesium that are liberated from these rocks and put into these plants. You're going to see bacteria that are really adding to this concert. You're going to see these interactions between mycorrhizal fungi and uh, the rhizosphere where the plants are capturing this nitrogen and using it as these sort of currencies of exchange. They're also point, pulling carbon out of the air and exchanging them. And so fertility is so much more than just these three elements, but we've sort of reduced it to such. Uh, and we use fossil fuels, right? Like this is this is what we put on our our land to, I would say, almost artificially create fertility, but at the same time, it's depleting all these other things because what it's allowing for is for us to monocrop and to sort of abuse the soil and deplete it from these vital nutrients to break down the soil food web. And so you're getting this, this artificial fertility that is in service to yield as opposed to this true fertility that we see in, in death, in connectivity, in natural cycles and processes that is always building soil organic matter that is always building more connection. Did that, did that yeah. kind of answer it? I love it. I think we got it. Um, sort of. I couldn't say it as poetically as you, <laughs> but um, we've already gotten our history lesson and our biochem lesson in for today. Um, can you speak to um, the idea that a vegan diet is not mm -hmm. without death and kind of connect that concept? Well, we're all recovering vegans here. So right. right. That's yes, absolutely. <laughs> this is the, I mean, the, the vegan vegetarian to regenerative agriculture pipeline is, it's yeah. strong. <laughs> it's strong. Every time I get a tick in my belt, you're like, and you're rendering your own lard. You yeah. go girl. <laughs> like, yep. You do have to work with the whole animal. Yes, you do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I really came to this at a young age. I became a vegetarian when I was five and it was really in this sense of wanting to avoid death. There was a lot of death in my household growing up. And I viewed this as something that I could control. And I think that we often come into this idea with food that here is, is one of the things in life that perhaps we can control and maybe we don't have to play into death. And there's this idea that veganism is a deathless diet. And one thing I like to highlight here is that we are very we don't see process a lot in this point in history uh, as as people. We don't see how food moves from farm to table or for how our clothes move from, from farm to table or how the elements in our phones and our com computers move from mine to electronics. Yeah. And so I think it's really easy to say that as I'm eating this bit of kale or whatever it is, that this is without death. And so I really like to highlight that death is inherent to all processes of life, of farming, of moving things from place to place. And death in veganism occurs in a lot of different places, right? We see it when we monocrop anything, if that's a field of kale, if that's a field of onions, if it's a field of spinach, 
we are displacing wildlife, rendering them without homes. That's going to cause some death. Anytime you're using mechanical implements, these big tractors that are a part of planting and harvesting, you are also causing some small death within the soil itself to go back to that idea of 1 billion microorganisms in a single teaspoon. When you have created a monocrop and you're losing soil organic matter, you are losing all of that life. And I, that's a, you know, it's hard because we kind of have this hierarchical idea, but we lose 20 billion tons of topsoil in the United States every year. And if there's 1 billion microorganisms in a teaspoon, uh, that's a rich amount of life that is being lost. I also think it's important to remember, you know, when we get into veganism, we're also increasingly getting into this techno-utopia idea of creating food from, from very little. And so we have these bioreactors that are made out of stainless steel, where we are fermenting certain bacteria in order to make protein. And it's important to remember that that steel was mined somewhere by people that probably were not treated well somewhere in the global South and that there is plastic that is fossil fuel that is being used to package all of this, that there is all kinds of things that we don't even see in that process that are death along the way. And I think it feels really easy to say, oh, I'm not participating in that because an animal didn't die for for my food. But you are a participant. Like this, you are participating in this greater cycle, in these greater supply chains as food, as goods move from all of these constituent parts and pieces into a whole and onto your table and into your home. And, and right. Maybe more of that outsourcing again, coming back to that, like disconnect something that needs constant amendment, constant man intervention versus yes. that cyclical synergistic web. It, it's not possible to sustain without a lot of input. Uh, yes, and, and correct. That, that giving of that sovereignty to technology, to man, to discovery, and, and stating that that's smarter or cleaner um, mm. is often where we get tripped up when we we lose that that magic magic of the natural design, if you will. Yes, and I think there's actually a parallel here too. When we were talking about fertility, we're talking about how I don't believe fertility can be reduced to N, P, and K, mm-hmm. right? That there's this there's this rich diversity that happens in death that is fertility. I don't think that food can be reduced to protein, carbs, sugars, you know, I don't. And when we're looking in a bioreactor, that's what we're seeing. Well, it has these amino acids, but food is a rich complex. When we're talking about the whole food matrix, it is many different things, right? We have secondary compounds that, you know, anthracyanins and terpenes and carotenoids and all of these things that Stefan Van Vliet calls the dark matter of nutrition, you know, as well as these trace minerals that we get from the soil. And all of these have been combined in this synergistic symbiotic way that nature has been making it for time immemorial. Mm -hmm. And so I think not only is there this illusion that we're not participating in death, but there's also this reducing of what that thing is in the first place. I think that's great. 
uh, I know we could rant. We've been doing so many rants recently on like, you know, breast milk versus formula versus with all the things going on now. I don't, we won't go into that now, but that just kind of is making me want to speak on that. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, I, I loved hearing you talk about the intimacy of eating. Um, so you kind of just started talking about like these secondary nutrients, but maybe even taking a step back to the process of nutrient assimilation, but maybe, maybe the more next level esoteric connection of how we become what we eat, um, and, yeah. and what that intimate relationship looks like and how that, how you describe that. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about this. So I run a, I run a small farm and I get to process all of my own f- meat specifically. I don't grow all of my own vegetables, but I, I raise all of my own meat. And so I've gotten a chance to become very intimate with my food and to kind of watch these processes. And I think that our intimacy with our food is actually why it's so closely held. Well, why we have this sense of tribalism when we talk about whether it's carnivore or vegan or whatever it is, it's because it's intimate. And so when I think about self and other, we have this idea that our boundary of skin is what demarcates our self. But as I said before, for every one cell that is human on our bodies, there are nine cells that are other, that are bacterial or viral, and they live on our skin and in our mouth, and they populate our digestive tract. And we are in constant exchange. And I love to think about this. We talked a little bit about the mycorrhizal fungi that are harvesting these rocks inside the soil for minerals, right? And rocks, you know, depending on what you believe, right? And burst forth from the Big Bang. And so they're really just stardust compressed throughout deep time. And you have these creatures inside the soil, whether that's fungal or an earthworm, that are liberating those minerals and exchanging them for carbon and other materials at the plant root. And then those minerals are becoming part of the plant and that plant is being eaten by humans and by other animals. It's being eaten by the ruminants, you know, the cattle or the the goats, the sheep or the pigs it's going to be a monogastric animal, not a ruminant, that we eventually eat. And one of the things I think a lot about is that when we lift our fork to our mouth, you know, two, three times a day during our meals, what we experience is we we chew our food and then it goes into our stomach and into our intestines where it diffuses across a one cell wall thick membrane. And it, those constituent parts that were, you know, once rock, once plant, once other animal become us. And I think that that is an incredibly intimate act. And again, really test that paradoxical boundary of self and other, that we are becoming our environment. And I think that process is actually as constant as the 20,000-ish breaths that we take each day, that we are taking in various bacteria and fungi that are in our environment, and they are becoming a part, again, of our microbiome, inside of our lungs, inside of our esophagus. And as we exhale carbon dioxide, that's actually becoming plant tissue, right? I just peeked over at a plant that I have sitting on my desk. And so there's this constant exchange that is happening, that is tying us inextricably into place, that we are a holobiont is one of my favorite words to describe this, 
that, you know, we are a part of our environment, this constellation of us and our microbiome and the foods we eat and the air we breathe and the plants and animals that we're near. And, you know, for those of us that have chickens or, or goats or even your dog, there's an exchange mm -hmm. that's happening that is informing our biology, right? It's this beautiful conversation that's happening between our environment and our biology through these relationships, even the relationship we have with the sun when we wake up and we get some morning light first thing. First thing, like that is a relationship that is informing our biology, that is changing that fabric of self that is so ineffable. I love that. Um, and I think that that even then layers experientially when we're eating as a, a locavore, whatever you want to call it, within your region, maybe not, maybe for the listeners that aren't able to fully ranch, but know their growers and ranchers and have the intimacy of a handshake or a hug or have walked the land or are preparing, listening to their favorite record or using their hands versus utensils. Um, I think that all that transpires and, and layers. And that's why sometimes, you know, it feels so good to eat the ghee that your friends stirred during a full moon, you know, or there, there's all of these just different yeah. energetics. I think that transpire with the food preparation and also why there's unfortunately such a disconnect in the world of metabolism and healthy body weight and eating this lack of desire to participate in food experience. Um, I, I don't know what that is because I'm a food foodie and a lover of food. Um, but I know when I feel disconnected from my food that I feel disconnected from what I would identify as myself. Um, and yeah. there's something within that as well. You know, the more we participate, the more intimate we feel with the cosmos is basically where yeah. <laughs> we, I mean, it, I love what you touched on too, right? Because it's the hands that touch our food to shake your farmer's hand or to eat the ghee of your friend that stirred this or to eat garlic that your friend grew in that region, right? Like these are parts of this web of community that is happening above ground that is part of how I think we, for lack of a better word, triangulate self, right? We can't experience like our experience of what it means to be a self is only through our interaction with other that, you know, when we reach out and touch something that there, there is another person on the side of that touch that is, is being felt. And when we take in beauty with our eyes, right, that is all the other in, in our environment that is being reflected back to us so that we can understand our place in, in the cosmos, as you said. And I think that it's building these above ground communities that are mirrors of these deep interconnected communities below ground that creates a sense of wealth, a sense of well being. Yeah. Love it. Um, let's talk about your personal story of connection with food and how you went from, you know, vegetarian disconnected to getting into butchery, farming, ranching, and, and kind of what came first there. Um, and maybe some of just the biggest, like, I don't know, surprises along the way. Mm, yeah. I mean, this really started for me as a child and, and it really did start with death. It really started with a sort of intense curiosity and avoidance, both. 
around this thing that felt very present, but also very hidden from me at the same time. And this decision to be a vegetarian at age five. And, you know, by the time I was hitting my late teens, I was really sick. And and it's no wonder, right? I, I, I had been avoiding meat for most of my life. I was fatigued. I had a lot of hormonal issues. I had a lot of gastrointestinal issues. I was depressed and I was hungry. And I was really experiencing this as a craving for meat. And that led me into wanting to know farmers and ranchers. I really felt that if I was going to eat meat again, that it had to be connected, that it had to be intimate. And this was a little bit after Michael Pollan's omnivores dilemma before the term regenerative agriculture enters the scene, you know, it's about 2009 or something. And I began visiting farms and ranches with holistic land management practices. And I was struck that as I began eating meat and sealing all of these all of these issues begin to resolve, seeing my body begin to heal, seeing my mind begin to heal, that I was also witnessing the power of ruminants that were being managed holistically to heal landscapes, that I would be on a farmer ranch that had a creek that had been dry for as many decades as anybody could remember, come back to life with some of these land management practices. And so I had this beautiful mirror of, oh, this is this is the same experience, this healing experience. And I became really passionate about that. And I opened up a butcher shop in 2013 in Denver, Colorado called Western Daughters. I had learned how to butcher. I just wanted to be as close to everything as possible. And that kind of rolled into a journey of exploring health of land and bodies through this lens of connection, through this lens of regeneration, and through a lens of meat as well, and eventually led me to to a very small farm myself. Love it. And um, within the butchery, what was the learning curve like? Mm -hmm. And um, was it an apprenticeship? Like, did you have to do hands-on? I'm just kind of curious about how you grew your skill set there. Yeah, so it was a year-long apprenticeship, and I I was very hands-on, and I I we would do, oh, I mean a lot, I, I thousands of animals that that came through. And one thing I like to say, you know, it's funny we end up I think in the food world, whether we're talking about butchery or we're talking about cooking and chefs, there's a lot of gatekeeping, and I really like to break that down because I think that this is something that we have been doing for millennia, and there is something that is in our DNA, a sort of carnal knowledge of how to do this. And I think that anybody with reverence and a knife can be a a butcher. And I feel the same way about cooking at home and making beautiful food that our hands know what to do when they are in the presence of beginning to process. And I mean this in a, in a very different way than processed food now, but beginning to process our food and, and turn it into the cooked product that we eat or to butcher it. And so um, that is one thing I like to say as well. I'm a classically trained butcher and which is such a beautiful thing. I get to see um, 
the life of animals from the inside out is something I say that you can kind of see this phytochemical richness or these secondary compounds inside the meat and the colors of the fat and how it changes with the seasons. But I think that this is something that anybody can do. Love it. And uh, when we were at the conference, Kate broke down a bison. Uh, it was incredible because such a large animal um, and to see it was you and your husband, right? Yes. Um, taking it. Yeah. And, and I mean, using a, what kind of saw was that? It's just a handsaw. A handsaw. Yeah. I was just like, a handsaw. And would mo would most use like something mechanical, but you just like using more of your own muscle hmm. and kind of hands-on approach or. I mean, it depends on where you are and what, what you're doing, you're right? Uh -huh. Yeah. And I mean, okay. it depends on what scale that you're doing that at, but when we're just breaking down one animal and we're showing people and we're in the field, which is my favorite place to do this. I like yeah. to forgo any electrical mechanical implements. Yeah. And then letting that blood run back into the earth, all of that whole process has been really cool. Becky and I did at Rome, the turkey harvest, mm -hmm. which was our first, you know, hands-on other than I remember when I was a vegan at best year, I had to break down a chicken and I was like, I know that I should learn this skill set. I was still making peace <laughs> with the process. Right. Uh, but I mean, I still say we, we have videos on spatchcocking and whatnot. And we're like, you know, you really, I think we've moved too far and you lose the nutrient density talking about those secondary and even tertiary nutrient compounds. Right. <laughs> when we lose the glycine from the tendons, when we, when we, we take away the skin, the bone from the cuts, we're losing the synergistic nutrient effect. And we can even see that in a lab value, for instance, homocysteine levels go up um, because mm -hmm. we don't get enough glycine to offset yep. the methionine. And so you see, yep. you know, acid imbalance when you take you're speaking my language. Uh, you know, when you take segments that you've been told are superior or better for your health, et cetera, again, it's this false knowledge that's deconstructed and, and, and takes away from the knowingness of the creator, you know, the natural design. Yeah. I think that that's a, a big thing for sure. Again, we're, we're, we're focusing on the parts and forgetting the whole. And I think that we've come back to this time and time again. And when you're talking about that methionine glycine ratio, that is incredibly important. It is present in the animal. You can see it. And what we do is we strip away those nutrient dense tendons and ligaments and cartilage and all of that. And we just eat muscle meat. Yeah. And, and we even have a word for this. It's called eating high on the hog. If anybody right. has ever heard that term, it's eating the cuts that are furthest from the ground. And so if we're going to pick on a, on a, a beef here, this is your ribeye, your New York strip, your top sirloin, yeah. all those things that are along the spine, the longismus dorsi, all of those different spaces. And we're not eating those tougher cuts that are generally as a rule of thumb closer to the ground. I don't think there is anything more unctuous and beautiful than shank meat. And it's beautiful because it has so much connective tissue, so much glycine that when you slow roast it is being broken down into that gelatinous, yeah. just velvety rich, goodness. And so that's, that's present in the animal and, and you get to see that you see all of that fascia, every, all the collagen that we can have access to if we choose to eat some, some different cuts. I was going to ask your favorite cut. Is it shank or something else? 
It is absolutely shank. I <laughs> I love shank meat. I also love ground meat. And I actually think ground meat is one of the most unsuspecting places to be a rich source of collagen because what you have is something that's mechanically breaking down that the, some of those tougher and more collagenous cuts into something that has a softer mouthfeel um, and is so accessible both in price and you can turn it into whatever. And so that is a staple in my house. Yeah, and also an easier entry point, maybe for some people. <laughs> so much easier to get yeah. organs, maybe. Yeah. And that's yeah. I want to talk organs a little bit too. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's hear about how you like to prepare them and just a little muse on organs and why those need to be included too. Yes. And I'm sure you've talked about this on the podcast, but these are going to be some of your most nutrient dense parts of an animal. And you even see this in the wild that when predators take down prey animals, the first thing that they're going for are going to be the organ meat and cracking open bones actually to get at the marrow and that really nutrient rich fat. And this is because you're seeing a really high amount of trace minerals. So uh, when we're talking about zinc and copper and actually in the correct ratio yeah. that we're looking for, as well as selenium, manganese, you're also seeing a really rich source of B vitamins and also glycine actually is, is pretty rich in a number of different organs. And one of my one of my biggest things around meat in general is that I want everybody to enjoy it. And I think that this is really important. Uh, I do not shame people for the way that they like to cook their meat or the cuts that they enjoy. And I think with organ meat, it's finding a space where you can really enjoy that. I think it adds a lot of richness and flavor. And I think that goes beautifully if you hide it in something like ground meat. And I I'm all for that if that's how you get it. I also think liver especially is beautiful, just like gently cooked. If you just sear it and you leave it a little bit soft, it has a really beautiful texture if you're not overcooking it where it's leather. Um, we can kind of baste it in ghee with a little bit of herbs is my favorite and salt um, or searing really thin strips of heart. I think that people struggle a lot with texture on organs. And I also find that former vegetarians and vegans tend to be a little texture sensitive. And yeah. so this is something that I actually really like to cater to. So when you go really thin on something that can help it feel a little bit easier and you don't need much with organs. Right. Right. It's something where a little bit goes a long way. And that's part of the beauty of how nutrient dense they are. Yeah. I love it. Uh, Real quick, just to get your point, I know you're going to have one. Uh, we did an episode uh, a couple weeks back called What the Bleep is Going on in Our Food System, where we talked about all of the things, uh, but lab-grown meat had just been approved uh, that week that we put that episode out. Um, what's your take on lab-grown meat? <laughs> I mean, we talked about it a little bit, right? We talked about that this is, this is happening in a bioreactor. This is reducing food down to this idea of these constituent, you know, nutrients that aren't a part of this whole food matrix that we see nature create. Uh, it requires a lot of extraction and a lot of inputs from earth, even if we feel like it's getting away from that. And it is lining the pockets of corporations. And I think that that is, that should absolutely be something that we see in it. I think that 
we have this beautiful potential for meat to be a healing force for both land and bodies and a force of connection, uh, connection for our bodies, connection for our communities, connection for our ecosystem. And I actually think that lab-grown meat is a source of disconnection, that this is disconnecting all those places. It is centralized. It is lining corporate profits. It is rolling into big pharma. It is disconnected from the whole concert and constellation of nutrients that can happen in sun and earth. Uh, Don't look kindly on it. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how that rollout goes. I know some countries are already saying we're going to ban this. We're not opting Mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. Um, I wish we lived in one of those countries, but (laughs) that will not be as such. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how it's received and whatnot. And, you know, we'll, we'll stand our ground here. Yeah. And I think this in many ways is actually a direct product of some of our fear of death and from some of this idea of avoiding death or living forever or all of these different pieces. I think this is a manifestation of that and this belief that technology will will save us somehow. I think that's great too. Um, How about plants? Let's just talk about where plants fit in terms of an Mm -hmm. ideal diet in your perspective and Mm. and what role they play in optimal nutrition? Hmm. I love this question. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that question. (laughs) Uh, I, one of the things that I think is really important that I see happening increasingly on social media is that we are really touting these one size fits all cures that the carnivore diet is for everybody or the vegan diet is for everybody or this or that uh, without recognizing that we are very bio-individual. And when I say that, I don't just mean your makeup. I also mean your environment that you're in now, but also the environment that you were in in childhood that set some of your microbiome early on, whether you were born vaginally or C-section, whether you were breastfed or not breastfed, uh, what medications you were on, the type of family life, and even the trauma or the love that you received sort of changes this bio-individual signature. And so one of the things that I've seen is there's just this idea that we can just sort of fit ourselves into any diet when every one person is going to be very different. And there were a constellation of things that brought us to this point. Um, And for those of us that are looking to heal or experiencing some dis-ease, right, A, a sense of lack of ease in our body, that there's going to be a constellation of things that are going to bring us out of it. And I think that We have a long history with plants as humans that we have been foraging and in some ways tending wild populations of plants, using them as both medicine and food, interacting with them on a biochemical level, whether it's actually reducing toxin loads. And you see this oftentimes with sort of early versions of potatoes in South America where they are eaten with certain clays almost as a condiment to absorb some of the toxins that might be there. And so we've been working with plants or fermenting them to reduce some of their toxin levels for a long time. And I really believe that for me, 
for most people, most people, that plants can be a really beautiful part of the diet that's adding a lot of this phytochemical richness. And there's a lot of phytochemical richness in meat as well. And uh, again, Dan Kittredge, Stefan Van Vliet at the Bionutrient Institute are really looking at the way that the phytochemicals that we associate with plants, again, terpenes, anthracinins, uh, carotenoids, tocopherols, all of these different things are actually in animal tissues as well in surprising numbers, especially depending on the way that they were raised. But I think that these are compounds that are we've been using biologically for a long time. And I know that for me, there are some vegetable, there are some plants that I'm sensitive to. I don't. So for, for example, I do not eat nightshades um, and do not find that my body can handle them. And maybe that will change in the future and maybe it won't. But I think that plants can be a really beautiful part of our diet and a part of our biology. Love it. Okay. Um, let's dig into this another layer of everything happens in relationships. So we talked about the relationship from literally rock to interaction, to mineral, to gut, um, becoming a part of us. Uh, that's kind of the flow of nutrients and matter through soil. Um, how's another way in that might surprise listeners as we're kind of coming to wrap up mm -hmm. here about, um, interconnectedness or, or how everything's in relation where, um, you find it to be a, an aha or a connection that you've experienced as you've been researching or just as living mm -hmm. and experiencing life. Hmm. That's a, that's a big question. I know, right? Um, <laughs> that's a really big yeah. question. You know, I think that they're everywhere. And I think that the really beautiful thing as we begin to feel like we are participants in this web of life is that you catch these mirrors in every place, right? So a seed, for example, has both an endosphere and a philosphere, and this is its microbiome. And the endosphere, it inherits from its parent plant. And so it inherits from the fl flower, but the philosphere, which is on the outside, it inherits from everything that it comes into contact with. And so a, a bee or a bird or a fly or a butterfly that alights on that is going to bring microbes. If a bison breathes out onto it, that's going to become part of that. And I think we can see a beautiful corollary between a child that comes through the vaginal canal and inherits the mother's microbiome as it's inoculated in that space. Uh, and then goes out into the world and has all these interactions with eating dirt and playing with things on, on the floor and outside and uh, touching animals. And so we see this space where we have this connection, but I think that the more that you begin to look for these places, the more you see this connectivity everywhere that you see a forest's ability to communicate through fungal networks. And you see that in our ability to form networks of communication that are helping to create these textured communities. And I just think that the more curiosity we leverage, 
about these relationships and connections that are happening at every moment around us from the smallest place you know I was thinking I was thinking today on my my walk I walk usually walk seven miles a day and I was thinking about how the interstitial space between ourselves is really where the fabric of everything that those cells need travels and they're like little stars in space and in the interstellar space between planetary bodies and so I think that the the more curious curiosity you leverage yeah the more you begin to see some of this I don't know if that answers that question oh, hopefully it. it does it. yes great um what would be some steps that you would recommend taking for individuals looking to like slow down directly connect you know, within their own households to their food, where is a good starting place? Yeah. One of the things I like to say at the outset of questions like this is that it, it should be easeful. I think so often we put a big burden or an onus on us that is actually counterproductive to us connecting. And so start where feels easy. And I think for most people visiting a farm or ranch, shaking the hand of a farmer or rancher, just like you said, Ellie, can be a beautiful place to start. You're sharing a little bit of your microbiome in that moment. You're getting to see a little bit of your ecosystem. You're putting back into a local economy and all of these pieces can kind of come together but it can also just be as simple as going outside and grabbing a handful of dirt and thinking about how rich with life that is and and how many mirrors there are there um it could be as simple as preparing a really easy meal at home and just being the hands that cook your food wherever it came from mm-hmm. And so I just want to offer to everybody that there's an entry point of starting small and easeful and to then let curiosity be your guide. If you're curious about that methionine and glycine ratio and how some glycine might feel in your body, look up a recipe for shanks and do a long braise if you normally just sear a steak. If you really love visiting your farm or ranch, maybe you buy a deep freezer and you buy a quarter share of a cow to really help support that rancher. Uh, If you loved picking up that soil, maybe you grow a very small garden to start with and you grow some of your own herbs or vegetables. And so I think that you can just kind of begin to span out by what lights you up. I love that. Yeah, that's great. Okay. As we come to a close, uh, let's talk where listeners can connect with you further. And then our last question that we ask all of our guests, what your 24 hour recall was. So yesterday from when you woke up to when you went to bed, what you had to eat. Absolutely. So you can find me, I'm mostly on my podcast, which is called Mind, Body, and Swale. Uh, We explore a lot of what we explored today, a lot of history, a lot of philosophy, some biochemistry, uh, a lot of health and wellness, and just all these different threads that I'm pulling together. You can find me on Instagram at Kate, K-A-T-E underscore Kavanaugh, K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H. And yeah, let's talk about yesterday, what I ate. So where were you ate the groundwork collective. Tell me a little bit about that. 
Groundwork Collective. Yeah, so groundworkcollective.com. You can also find a farmer. So we have a whole farm finder um, and you can search by all of these different filters. So if you're looking for a certain certification or you're looking for a certain species of animal, uh, we have some milk on there as well. And so that's a great place to initially connect with that farmer, like we talked about. We'll link that as well, for sure. Yeah. Um, so I started my morning with some goat yogurt that I made. We have goats that I milk every morning and I make this yogurt that I've then strained to make it a little bit thicker. I like a thicker Greek yogurt. And I had gathered some blackberries from some blackberry bushes that we have here on our farm. And I had that with it. Uh, in the afternoon, I had a little bit of it was actually ground beef um, from here on the farm with just a little bit of herbs and salt and a couple of slices of cheese for lunch. Um, and it was a little bit of a smaller portion. And then in the evening I had, this is going to sound so boring, but I want to keep it, I want to keep it real and honest. Um, I had some ground pork with some carrots that some friend of friends of ours grew uh, and a whole bunch of herbs and some garden celery, which I find to be absolutely different than store-bought celery, just radically different. And then I sauteed some zucchini that we grew here on the farm with some radicchio because I really like to get some bitter in there and a little bit of bone broth. Ooh, I love that. And when you're doing your ground meats, are you doing that like kind of like ground meat, like taco style in the sense of like just ground in a skillet or are you forming into patties or meatballs and just ground in a skillet? Yeah. Okay. It, it is not fancy. And I, I actually find that's what I eat the most of. Yeah. And what are you using uh, as your favorite cooking fat? Like with those, did you add tallow or lard or just dry in a skillet? How are you doing? Yeah. So I usually render my fat and I put them in silicone ice cube trays. Uh, which is my favorite trick. And then you can, you just have these little ready to go cubes that you can drop in and melt. And so usually I'm using tallow, either, either beef or goat actually, cause I raise a lot of goat um, or I, I use ghee, um, some ghee that we buy. We also make a little bit of ghee here on the farm. Um, and those are my two favorite cooking fats. And then I mostly, I mostly use Redmond real salt, um, which I'm pretty passionate about uh, making sure, you know, where your salt comes from. Uh, I think there are different places to get it, but yeah. Great. Love it. Oh, well, this has been such a treat having you on Kate. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I think we have like 17 quotes of Zen <laughs> that I could <laughs> extract. And, um, I think it's just so fun talking to you. You're such a muse to have a conversation with. Well, I so appreciate it. This was a great conversation and I really appreciate it. Getting to answer some different questions. That's always such a pleasure. So thank you for providing such a beautiful container for conversation. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.